Good evening. Really appreciate Brother Ben's kind words earlier in regards to uh, my upcoming gospel meeting at Livingston. Uh, we're excited about that and uh, hopeful that the next week will go well, but it's always scary when you get a compliment and then have the opportunity to prove somebody wrong. Uh, so that's, that's how I take compliments. It's probably not a positive way to view things, but uh, I appreciate Ben and all the work that he does here. Uh, and I uh, love my brother-in-law. Love my brother-in-law. Uh, Friday, I was blessed to sit down with my kids during their nap time movie. Um, this is not something I get to do a whole lot, but uh, this day I was blessed to get to do that. And the feature on Friday was Oscar-nominated cinema masterpiece called Frozen 2. I don't know if you are familiar with Frozen 2. I'm going to spare you uh, every opinion that I have about Frozen 2. But I found myself thinking one thing as I was watching it. Can you imagine the, uh, the pressure on that production team to create another song like Let It Go. I don't know if you're familiar with the song Let It Go from the first Frozen movie, but it was like a global phenomenon song. Like you can look up and listen to it in like every language uh, under the sun. It was just a worldwide smash hit. How do you match that? Well, apparently you do not, because I've watched Frozen 2 recently. And there is not a song like Let It Go in Frozen 2, in my opinion. But at the start of the movie, there's a song that caught my attention. It's a song called Some Things never changed. I'm sure all the moms in here and the dads could probably sing that to me verbatim. The message of this song, and there's comedic hijinks going on in the background as they sing, is that though the world changes around us in, in various ways, there are certain good things that never change. There are things that remain constant. The reassuring hand of a friend, the warmth of the love that we feel in our hearts, and all other kinds of corny stuff like that from the Disney movies, right? We, we have this pretty positive spin on the idea of things staying the same. Some things never change in a good way. But poets and songwriters are rarely that cheerful. Usually they're more depressive. And so for a different take, I'd offer a song from the 1980s, right? After a survey of what he felt were uh, the gross injustices of the times, be it the welfare line uh, or unequal hiring practice, our sage Bruce Hornsby gives us the bare bottom truth, which is that's just the way it is. Maybe you've heard that song, right? That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. Kind of a more depressing take on the idea that Things don't change, and, and sometimes things don't change in a bad way. He leaves a little line of hope in there that maybe someday you can believe that things will change, and we know that things have changed over time, right? Things have changed, and largely they've changed for the worse, I would say. Things have changed in a lot of bad ways, but it would be an overstatement to say that all change is bad universally. Change is the way of the world. It's the way of history. If we read the Bible, for instance, we would note there's a lot of change that's happened over the course of time. Change in that way is simply unavoidable. Now, of course, there are those people that live for change, right? Their entire, uh, if you will, their background, their pulpit is for change, even a push for change for change's sake. There are those that want to remove the moral foundations of society. They want to redefine the most fundamental understandings of reality because they believe that that is really the only way that they can remove the shackles of God from their lives. That's what the bottom line is. They want to remove the authority of God from the equation and they'll do it under the banner of progress, right? Well, What's progress? We're changing things. Things are getting better. The truth is there are some things that do not change. 
We know that. There are things that never change. Right is always right. Sin is always sin. God is an immovable constant. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And thank God. Hallelujah. We have a constant that we can hold on to in our lives because without these anchors, we could have no understanding of the world around us. Postmodernism, things of its like, that say there is no absolute truth, it's all relative. Uh, There's systems that lead us to shaky ground where we can't have any idea of what truth or reality really is. When it comes to these truths, we have no ground or no room to negotiate on them. They simply are true and they do not change. And yet, for you and me tonight, as we sit here, I come before you saying that change is a necessity. We must change. Because while everything that we have said is true up to this point, everything we've said about those that push for bad change, the unavoidable change, for the things that do not change, the words of Scripture tell us that as Christians, change is not an option. It's the only path that we can take forward. All are called to come as they are, but none are permitted to stay as they are once they come. Jesus demands change. He demands that we change. If any writer in the Bible exemplifies the fact that change is a necessity, it would have to be the Apostle Paul, right? Paul, he knew a thing or two about change in his life. He experienced maybe one of the biggest changes in human history when he went from being an enemy of the church, a persecutor of Christians, to preaching Christ in the synagogues, that Jesus was the Christ, that he was crucified, that he rose from the dead, and that he is the Lord of the universe. I'm sure those around him had whiplash. Who is this guy? We, we just saw him here. Now he's doing this. Paul knew a thing or two about change. And as Paul preached the gospel, he was constantly calling on his listeners to change their lives, to become something different than what they were. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformation. What about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What about Colossians 3 as well? And you've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Paul says that saved people are changed people. We see that people who are saved must change. And tonight I want to look at a passage where Paul encourages Christians to take up Jesus on his offer. Take that yoke of Jesus, take his name and proclaim it to the world, but be warned, you must be changed. You will not say the same if you are going to follow Jesus. So tonight, we're going to look at a text from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. In this reading, I want to note three important realities that Paul lays out, and then the lesson will be yours. First, we're going to see the old darkness. Then we're going to see the new man that God has created. And then finally, we're going to look at a picture of the changed life as Paul lays it out in this text. So first, let's take a look at the old darkness, starting in verse 17. 
This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. When Paul talks about lost people in his writings... The picture painted is rarely one of semi-intelligent people who have great intentions and bad ideas, right? Well, the lost, they're just confused, right? They're just ignorant. They're great people. They're living good lives, but they're just confused about a couple of things. That's not the picture that Paul paints. Paul paints a picture of the lost being like those in the back of a dark cave without a match. They are lost. They, they have no direction. They do not know the reality going on around them. In truth, because when Paul saw the Gentiles of the Roman world, the world that he lived in, he saw people that were separated from life itself. In verse 18, he says they're alienated from the life of God, and that life is the only life that matters. He says there are people that think they're alive. They think that they're functioning humans in the world, but without God, they are dead. Lost people are living in a life of death. And Paul sees that the darkness that is gripping the world around him, that it's changing the people that are inside of that darkness. It's changing them really from the inside out because their heart has grown hard. They're calloused. They don't see the reality of God and the good things of God and righteousness around them. And so to find their comfort in this world, to find their meaning in life, they go farther and farther into the darkness of their own lusts, right? If we looked at Galatians chapter 5, Paul details all of these things that the natural man is given to. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all listed together, it almost sounds like an unimaginable, unimaginable cartoonish laundry list of all the sins in the world. Well, there's the, the worst of the worst people that you could imagine, right? That do all of these things that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we can shake our head and say that we simply wouldn't believe that someone would be given over to this kind of debauchery. But we can't fool ourselves. The world is given to these things. This is what the world runs on. They live for this kind of gratification. But while we recoil at the the sexual and sensual nature of a lot of these sins, or, or we see sins that we consider outlandish like sorcery and idolatry, if you're like me, you have to cringe at that list because you see things like jealousy and anger, envy, divisions, and strife. These aren't the struggles of some distant, far-off theoretical sinner, right? These are things that we struggle with. These are problems that we face in our lives, our tendencies, our struggles, and they are things of this world. They are things that have no place in the kingdom of God, and those that practice them will not inherit that kingdom. And that's why Paul tells the Ephesians, you must forsake these things. You must put them behind you because the mind that is captivated by that next high, that next self-serving pleasure is one that is powerless to change. As long as you're trapped in the cycle of these works of the flesh, you will never change. You will only go farther and farther down the hole of your own sin. And left to the darkness itself, 
those people will come to hate the light. They don't want the light. John tells us in his gospel that the reason they hated Jesus is because they hated the light. The darkness did not want to see the truth of their actions. And that's why we need the one who can change minds to help change our mind through his word. This morning, Brother John Ratner made a great point when Jesus is writing the letter to the church at Thyatira and says, I'm the one who knows the hearts and minds of people. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one that knows you. And he's the one that can change our heart. He's the one that can change us from lovers of the darkness to lovers of the light. And so because of that, we're not looking to the old darkness, but rather we're looking to the new man that God wants to create in us. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 20. It says, but you have not so learned Christ, according to all these uh, works of darkness, the works of the flesh, you haven't learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. A question from Paul is, how did you learn Christ? How are you introduced to the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God? What are your opinions about him? What kind of idea were you given when you were introduced to Jesus? Because in a world of religious confusion that we live in, there is no shortage of ideas about who Jesus is, what he is about, and what it means to be his follower. If you go out there, you can throw a rock and hit one. People have all kinds of opinions on this. Paul says for those that learned Christ in truth, They learned the real Jesus, the real truth of Jesus, that the only option is to change. If you meet a Jesus that makes you feel good about yourself and go, man, this Jesus reaffirms that I'm actually a great person already. This Jesus tells me I'm exactly what I need to be already. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Coming in contact with Jesus will tell you I must change. I have to be different. I have to be a different person than I was before. A change of mind so extreme, it's like we're a whole new person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives another one of these long lists of those sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But after it, he chimes in with this amazing sentiment, and such were some of you. You were all of these evil, worldly, fleshly sins, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you go onto YouTube, you can watch videos of just about anything under the sun. One of the things they have on YouTube are these power washing videos. I don't know if you ever watched them, but the guys go out with their high-powered power washers, and they go and find these surfaces. I don't care if it's a sidewalk or a building or whatever it is, a vehicle. They, they find these surfaces, and they use these power washers, and they're taking years of dirt and grime, years, and you think, man, that is beyond hope, and they take that power washer, and they go up and down on it, and what does it look like? looks new. looks brand new. Baptism is not a low-pressure bath for lightly stained good people. Baptism is a power wash that can turn the vilest, dirtiest sinner into a pure, sinless son of God. That's what the Bible calls death and transformation, rebirth. Look at Romans chapter 6. It says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul says, if you died with Jesus, 
You're a completely new person. The life that you live now is new. And we among all people, especially among our friends, our, our denominational neighbors and co-workers, we appreciate baptism and its role in the gospel and forgiveness of sins. We believe that, we preach that, we affirm it and stand on it. But even I think that we are guilty of shortchanging what God accomplishes through the blood of his son in baptism. And the reason is because that even among those that have grown up in the church, we often view ourselves as better than we really are. Now, not everybody has this problem. Some people view themselves much lower maybe than they actually are, but several of us think that maybe we're not as bad as the person across the street. We're not as bad as that criminal on TV. We're not as bad as this person that we know that's a sinner. And so in some ways we view baptism as a way to rid ourselves of those few sins maybe that we've happened into uh, committing. We're, we're mostly good people. We might not think that <laughs> word for word, but we seem to think it by the way that we act at times. Or maybe we'll wait to get baptized until we have all of our ducks in a row. How many times have you heard somebody say, I just need to get my life right. I just need to get a few more things worked out. Maybe I just need to learn just a little bit more, and then I'll be ready to be baptized. I'm all for diligence, <laughs> making sure that you are making that right decision with your full conscience behind it, knowing that this is the most important decision of your life, and yet so many people are delaying as if they need to get fixed before they get in the water, not that the water is going to help fix them. That's where the change is going to be made. The problem is really twofold, I believe. One is that we underestimate the power of sin, and two, we overestimate our own righteousness. Now, at some moment in life, you will commit your first sin, the first sin that you are accountable for. You sin, and you are accountable before God for it. Only one. Imagine a state where you've only committed one sin to your account. What's that one sin worth? An eternity in torment, right? That one sin is worth an eternity in torment, and it can condemn you to hell for all eternity except for the grace of God. And you say, wow, Titus, this is a real downer of a sermon, right? But understanding that our righteousness is not enough to get to heaven is not a downer. That's not a thing to make us upset because until we realize that, we will never have confidence that we will ever attain to heaven. If it's ever on our back, if it's ever we'll get to heaven on our own goodness, we're never going to make it. We'll never believe we can get there because it has to be by the grace of God. God knows this. If you read Psalm 103, it says, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. However you view yourself, when God the Creator looks down on you with all the love in the world, the, the love and affection Father, he remembers that at the base level we are dirt. But God can do some amazing things with dirt. He's done some amazing things with dirt before, and he can take that dirt and he can change us and recreate us. Think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. It says, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God. When we think about God creating man, we think about him taking that dust and creating Adam almost from nothing, pulling him up out of the earth, breathing the breath of life into him. And, and Paul says, when God recreated you in baptism, it was the same thing. He took the dust that you are, the death that you were, and he's created a new man according to his image, right? The image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we cannot sell God's intentions short. 
God does not take bad people and make them into passable citizens. He does not take good people and make them a little bit better. God wants to take you, a sinner, and make you like him. He wants to make you righteous. He wants to make you holy. You aren't capable of that change within yourself, but the word of God, the word that created the heavens and the earth, is capable of making a new man out of any one of us. There is no question that baptism plays a massive role in that change. The start of that change, what happens in the waters where God declares us righteous, and now we've been created a new man, but we cannot stop at baptism. Baptism is not the finish line. You've heard it said from this pulpit before. Baptism is not the end goal. It is the starting line for the change that God wants to see in us. For the the last part of this lesson, the changed life, let's look at Ephesians 4 verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. He continues in verse 29. Uh, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." I am a person that enjoys a good work-life balance. I like to go to my job, do my work at my desk, and when I get up from my desk, guess where I like to leave my work? Sitting right there. I don't like to bring it in the truck with me when I'm heading home, and I'm blessed that I have a job that kind of works like that. I, I want a degree of separation between my real life and my work life, right? There's a difference there, and I like to have that little barrier. I think there are Christians that have a great church life balance, right? Have a great church life balance because they work hard to be here when the doors are open, which is a great thing. That's a thing that faithful people do. They always make an appearance, maybe even at fellowship meals. They don't miss a Bible class. And of course, they're committed to avoiding the major sins, right? They don't go out and, and kill or steal or uh, commit adultery on a day-to-day basis. They, they are going to avoid those things, and they were never much tempted to do those things anyway. That's the kind of person I'm thinking about. Beyond that, they're a normal person like anybody else, right? They have their friends, their families, their interests, all sorts of people in their lives that are kind of in this separate compartment of their lives. What's the problem here? What's the issue with that? They've changed what they do for four hours a week, usually. They're here every time the doors are open, but they're the same person that they were before they got into the waters of baptism. Nothing really has changed outside of that. Well, what's the biblical model of Christianity? The biblical model of Christianity is to allow the truth of Jesus to invade each and every corner of your life. All of it is to be filled with the truth of Jesus Christ. And of course, that means abiding in the doctrine of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus on worship and church organization and all those things we want to be sure to be right about and teach the truth on. But look at how Paul illustrates the transformation in Christ in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Jesus is the truth, and he says, the people that follow me will tell 
the truth. How easy is it to be a Christian and come sit on a pew and also be a liar? Be someone who doesn't tell the truth. Be someone who's not forthright. Not to be nice, right, just for the sake of niceness. Not to be polite, to make everyone around us comfortable. But in love, telling the truth. That's, that's difficult, but that's what following Jesus will do to us, especially towards those of us that are fellow Christians and those in the church. What about verse 26? He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Jesus says, if you're my follower, I forbid you to be angry to the point of sin. I forbid you to be angry to the point where you take revenge, where you have to get even, where you have to make up your own justice. Jesus says, take that anger and get rid of it before sundown. Because if you do not, you're giving room for Satan to come into your midst. He wants in here. He wants to be among us. He wants to tempt us and hurt us and make us fall away from God. We give place to him when we let that anger fester, when we hold grudges, when we have that in between us. Verse 28, it says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Jesus not only wants us to stop being sinners, that's step number one, stop sinning, but he wants us to go beyond stopping sin. He wants us to start being servants. Stop being a sinner, start being a servant. Don't steal. We usually have not so much of a problem with that. Instead, though, instead of just not stealing, work and give to those who need it, right? That's a total change of mindset. I go from being one thing to being the opposite, someone who takes to someone who gives. I'm going from being like man, being like a sinner, to being like God himself, and that's going to require a change of mind. In verse 29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Jesus said, I'm going to affect what you say and how you say it. I'm going to change you into a person who does not tear people down with their words, but rather your words are going to build up people to the point that they can come to know the grace of God. That's who I'm going to turn you into. And if there's anything left on the list, verse 31 and 32, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, uh, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Put away the bitterness against your brother who's disappointed you. Take that grudge against a sister from years back and get rid of it. Put these things away. Get them out of the church family. Stop talking about your Christian family behind their back out of hate for them. Do all this not because these people around us deserve to be loved and forgiven. Not every person deserves to be loved and forgiven, but we do it because we didn't deserve it, and God loves and forgives us. We're in need, and so we ought to forgive and love those who are in need from us. The message again and again that we see from Paul is that Jesus isn't satisfied with people who will not change who they are. Jesus wants people who will faithfully attend services, but he does not just want weekend visitation. 
He wants more than that. Jesus wants people that avoid sin, but Jesus doesn't just want sin avoiders. He wants workers of righteousness. Jesus doesn't forbid us from loving our families or working jobs or from living quiet, peaceable lives, but he will not be second place in our lives. He says, love your family, but love me more. Work your job, but do it as if you're doing that work for me. That's how you should view it. I think brother uh, Dan Winkler said it best. I heard him in a sermon one time and he said, Jesus does not want for a second to be the biggest part of your life. Jesus wants to be your life. There's a big difference. There's a big difference in the way that we view him and we view him in our lives. I heard a story about a couple that was going through some difficulties in their marriage, going through some hard times. There was some selfishness going on, some hurt feelings, and eventually they turned to counseling for help, right? They were going to seek out some help. So during the course of the, the sessions, you know, words were said, and admissions were made, accusations were made, and eventually the symptoms led to a sort of diagnosis of the problem and saying, this is what you're going to have to do to fix this, to make this marriage work, to make it better. And upon hearing the words of the counselor, the husband kind of stood up from the table and threw up his arms and said, I'm sorry, I can't help it. This is just the way I am. It is just who I am. In other words, what? I can't change. This is who I am. And the counselor calmly in a quiet voice looked at the man and said, sir, there is only one I am. The rest of us are made to change. We have to be willing to change for God. There are many in here, many faithful Christians who have given their lives whole heart, wholeheartedly to Jesus in obedience. And they're a prime example of how Jesus will welcome you as you are, but you will never be the same. You've seen people that have lived the faithful life of servants and who have come out the other side holy and righteous and ready to meet their God. But maybe you're here tonight and it's time for you to make that change. Maybe you're sitting here and going, I've become stagnant, right? I haven't grown. Uh, you've done the pew sitting, maybe. Uh, you, you've been a good enough person for a long time, but it's time to start becoming like Jesus. It's time to start making a change. You know, we can put a lot of different words on change. We can call it change. We can call it growth. But the reality is, if you stop growing, you will die, there's no other way around it. So what will it look like for you? Maybe it's starting that daily Bible study that you picked up a while back, and maybe you're going to pick it back up. You had good intentions, but you fell away from it. You just got busy. Maybe it looks like that for you. Maybe it will be putting yourself out there and talking to someone on the opposite side of the building, right? I, I sit over here. It's hard sometimes to make it over here to this corner. Maybe that's what the change will look like. It'll look like extending a handout. Maybe it's having somebody in your home and putting food on the table in front of them. Maybe it's hospitality. Maybe it's going outside of your comfort zone and doing something you're just not used to doing. Maybe it all goes back to just falling in love with Jesus Christ, meeting him again, reading his words, challenging yourself, falling in step behind him, even to the road of the cross, because that is a road that will change us. That is a road that will not leave us the same because you need to change. I need to change. We aren't good enough. We aren't what we need to be, but God loves and is ready to change us if we will give ourselves to him. We have to start the process of becoming an image 
of Jesus. If we start that and do it faithfully, God is faithful to save us, and one day he will change you into a person fit to live with him for eternity. But we have to start that process now.